This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Okay, so today on the Becoming Educated podcast, I have with me Oliver Caviglioli, also known as Ollie Cav. Ollie is a former head teacher of a special school. He's an author, designer, and illustrator who's widely known for his work on dual coding, which led to him writing the brilliant and beautiful Dual Coding with Teachers. Ollie has collaborated with many educators, often providing excellent illustrations for their books, most notably Tom Sherrington's Rosenshine's Principles in Action and the recent How Learning Happens by Paul Kirshner and Carl Hendrick. Ollie is also a co-author of the excellent teaching walkthroughs alongside Tom Sherrington. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us on the Becoming Educated podcast today. Great, lovely to be here. Look forward to chatting. It's my pleasure entirely. So just to, to kick us off, Ollie, can you give us a quick whistle-stop tour of your career and share with the listeners your, your journey through education? Sure. Well, it starts a long time ago. I first started teaching in September 1976, and I was in a secondary school. I taught PE and French. I didn't last very long, and within a couple of years, I was in a special school, teaching all ages, all subjects. And what I found then was really interesting, um, the the more qualified teachers with the master's degrees were in special schools. So it seemed to me I found that the lower the academic um, attainment of the students, the higher the, the qualifications of the staff, because learning didn't happen naturally, so you had to kind of investigate it. Um, before that, my father was an architect, so I didn't follow his route, but I was steeped in design every day, all the time. I don't know, you know architects had views on everything, the shape of your shoes, the colour of your shoes, the the, the, the the material of that pole, everything, typography, layout. So when I was in special schools and children with multiple difficulties, visual communication was obviously a major factor. So that was a demand. Um, we spent a lot of our time with educational psychologists. Um, and so I used my graphic skills. At the same time, I increasingly understood the psychology of learning and perception, which I continue to do. When I became a head teacher, I started applying the same principles as I um, remembered what it was like to attend a staff meeting and be bored out of my pants by the head teacher going on and on and on, and my mind saying, write it down, I could read it in a second. So I started producing newsletters for staff every Monday morning. Um, every It's a great discipline. So every Sunday I was doing it, every Monday morning in their pigeonholes. And so we just had meetings when we needed to, not because it was Monday, four o'clock or whatever. And then I started increasing. I started, I wanted staff to read more. But at the same time, it's really easy to tell staff to read more when they're really busy. So I started summarizing books, a whole book on one side of A4. You know, so I kind of like that pricey part. Of, um, and then um, I started, I wrote a couple of books, did training, and then when the whole research ed thing came along, um, I kind of was going to retire, but I, it seemed a natural a spur to kind of start a new career. And now I call myself this, it sounds a preposterous and pretentious term, an information designer. And in essence, I tell people, teachers on my course at the beginning, you are yourself an information designer. And by the end of the day, they realize, actually, that's what teachers do. 
they curate, they get information, they understand the prior knowledge and interest of their students, and they they organize it and they curate it and they sequence it in just the right degree to attract and stretch their students. They are information designers. So let's find out what works. No, certainly, I like that that summary. I also, um, I'm a I'm a teacher of physical education as well, so it was great to hear that you started your career uh, teaching some P. I'm going to go through some of the some of the things you spoke about and eke out that idea of of teachers being information designers and how we can use that. So before we kind of go into some of, some of those information design principles, what is dual coding theory that you, you've based your your, your most, lot of your work on, and, and how did you come to write a book about it for teachers? So it's been around a long time, 70 years, um, and there's been some discussion on the internet about whether something is or isn't dual coding, and then um, quite rightly and accurately, the reminder that you know the teacher doesn't do dual coding, it's the student who receives information visual and verbal format, so that's clear. However, we don't want to make people feel uncomfortable because they've said, I'm doing dual coding. You could equally... Um, uh, criticize a teacher saying I'm doing retrieval practice and say no you're not you may be instigating and designing activities such that the recipients the students actually do the retrieval practice but then that's a bit of a mouthful for everything that we say so it's a shorthand to say teachers do dual coding the understanding clearly is it's at the other end who who assimilate a word and an image so Pivio spent four over four decades researching a really simple hypothesis that from an evolutionary point of view, we've got two channels, one for words and one for everything else. So it's not just images, it's other senses, but the image predominates. So it's a really good idea, you see, so that when you're in the dark and you can't see, you can still hear. <laughs> you know, so it's good for survival. Um, so his research, we mustn't forget, his research was with cognitively unchallenging material. Uh, simple stuff. You want to learn vocabulary in German? Just no. There's no concepts. Just learn the word. So he got a word and image, put them together, and as Professor Paul Kirshner calls it, they jot or Pivio calls it associative links. So in other words, if you have the word cat and you have an image of the cat, they link. And so the encoding process, which is just a flashy word for learning, is doubled because you get two mechanisms for the one idea and Paul Kirshner calls that double barreled learning because it leaves a double memory trace so when it comes to the other end spewing it out in retrieval you double the chance of doing it because you can your memory can be triggered by either the word or the image or both now if that was all there was to dual coding that's all Pivio researched and if that was all that was to dual coding we'd go home because there's nothing else to say. You know, it's moderately powerful. It's really rigorous because he spent four decades trying to break his theory. So it's one of the most um, resilient theories we've got. But I call that story number one. Story number two is what Pivio also wrote about, but other psychologists research. And this is far more interesting and far more powerful and relates to teachers in the classroom who are dealing with explaining concepts to their students. Story number two says, is based on Pivio saying, the structure of verbal information is different to the structure of visual information. 
and therefore both are processed differently. Obviously, we know verbal information is sequential, a word, a word, a word, a word, a word, a word, and they're all strung together with grammar or syntax. He says that has inherent cognitive constraints or difficulties. In other words, when you read a sentence, although we're used to it, for a child dealing with unfamiliar material, a sentence can sometimes be difficult because in it we have a clause that relates to something that isn't the subject. And then we have different tenses. And who's the subject of all those verbs? Now, there's lots going on. That's before you un that's in order to understand something. So that's sequential in nature. Visual information he uses two interesting words that don't really make sense. He says the information is presented to you simultaneously or synchronously. So what that means is when you look at a diagram, all the elements in the diagram you get in one in one view. Not that you can process them all in one go, but you can process many parts in one go. And so that ends up, um, some psychologists in 87 wrote a paper, Larkin and Simon, um, something about, you know, 10,000 words equals, 10, 000, one image is equal to 10,000 words, in brackets, sometimes. Um, and in it, basically, there's, two, there's the very simple research they did again and again. Half the group were given a bit of text to understand, given comprehension questions and retrieval questions afterwards. The others were given the same information in diagrammatic form, and those who were given the diagrammatic format were more effective in both types of questions. And these psychologists, Larkin and Simon, called that the visual argument, in which a well-formed diagram is said to be, it comes a bit of jargon for you in the morning, computationally more efficient computationally more efficient and what that means is you're able to identify and find the bits you're talking about and you can make an inference um, and diagram uh, is I'm much easier at doing that I mean I've, I've, I do an exercise on my course which is also in my book uh, have you read the book yet mm -hmm. about the Euro yeah. project yeah you know yeah the interesting thing about the modern Euro project if people have done my course or read the book first and I, I present it to them, and they're familiar with it, guess what? They're no better. <laughs> they're no better. So obviously it's artificial. You know, I've done it to trip them up. But they're no better. When you look at a piece of text, you know, you're reading it, you understand every word, but it almost seems to disappear from your memory straight away. And then you try and link the next bit, and then, oh, you have to go back to the beginning. It's just you really understand what the word computational efficiency mean as you struggle to make sense of something so out of that this is what i call dual coding story number two whether we call it dual coding it still uses both channels it still stems from pyvio although in a way it's centuries old it's centuries old you know there's nothing new much under the sun it's just an easy catch-all sentence of mm -hmm. phrase dual coding story number two and so the natural outcome that I present to teachers is a kind of a provocative but maybe enlightening question is I ask them to entertain the possibility that maybe some of the things they teach may be conceptually far easier than the language with which they have to express it. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the language complicates it. 
the concept is quite easy. Mm-hmm. So the, the breaking it down into its most simple simple components, because you've quoted Sean Allison and Andy Tharby a couple of times in the book, and they say that always look for the easiest path to learning challenging material, not the hardest. Is that what you mean in there? Yes, exactly, if you want to get the concept over. Now, of course, some people jump to the gun and they say, ah, it's as if I'm arguing for visuals over words, which is not stupid. (laughs) Clearly, they have to get used to language, Mm -hmm. spoken and written, they have to get used to it. But that mustn't be a hurdle all the time. I also link it to Daisy Christodoulou, who points out the obvious that marathon runners don't race a marathon every day. (laughs) So, you know, in two months' time, they have this test called a marathon race. But in order to prepare for the marathon race, they don't do a marathon every day. They break it down to various components. So the student's marathon is like an exam. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, and in the exam, they're faced with no visuals and just this text. And they have to deal with the complexity of syntax. But it doesn't mean that you present that all the time. Give them the concept first in the most efficient way. And a lot of the time, it'll be diagrammatic visual format. And interestingly, when they get the concept, they'll go back and they'll better understand the language. Mm-hmm then they'll understand why we use those words, those verbs, those phrases, those adjectival clauses once they've got the concept. So ironically, they'll be better at language if you don't always throw language at them. Mm-hmm. So if you, throw, if, you, if you do it with diagrams and, and slowly build it up, then they'll be able to better understand the language because they're, they're, you're using two, if I'm wrong, using two different processes. You're using the visual and the verbal. I think I'm saying something else, though, that is present. I'm saying... They get the idea first. They understand the concept. They get what it's all about. Then they ex- then they reinforce the understanding and they, they appreciate why the language is saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. So they understand it with the diagrams. They get the concept. Then they read the language which previously seemed too abstract or com- complicated. They go, oh, I get what it means. Mm-hmm. So it, it brings it brings meaning and understanding to the, to the words yep. that they're seeing. Yeah, so you come from understanding, not searching for understanding through this complex syntax. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I think we've, I think we've, we've, we've grasped that there. So thank you. Um, but dual coding isn't isn't the only research that you've included in the book. So what else is is also important for teachers to consider alongside this idea of dual coding theory? Well, it's integrally linked with um, Sweller's um, cognitive load theory. In fact, he calls dual coding dual mode because we talk about our modalities. Mm -hmm. Dangerous word to use because it it triggers people's memory of neuro-linguistic programming, NLP, modalities, you know, that kind of American stuff. Mm -hmm. But it is dual mode, dual coding, whichever you want to call it. Um, Richard Mayer, by the way, I think confusingly calls it multimedia learning which for people in my generation triggers images of a trolley with a TV on there. <laughs> Media, you know, it starts, dual mode. So um, we, again, on my course, I, I demonstrate one of the aspects of cognitive load theory, which is called the transient information effect. In other words, you speak to someone with no images, you can lose them easily because we have to hang on to the words and we have, a, we have a little auditory loop, like a mini tape recorder, and it hasn't got so much tape. And once that tape gets filled up, we're lost. We either hang on to what we can remember and don't listen anymore, 
or carry on listening, which almost records over what we'd learned before. Transient information. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's the main one, really. There are other minor ones, but that's the most important aspect of um, its link to uh, cognitive load theory. Mm-hmm. Certainly, and I, I like that. Can we put there about the transient information effect? And we've all we've all been in situations where we're listening to people and we end up kind of losing focus. But when if you compare that with with a di- a diagram, then correct me if I'm wrong. That that idea of the modality effect is that you can share the information across your different channels, and you're not just focusing on one channel. Is that correct? It is. The also the other thing is is that it's permanent. Words disappear. Mm-hmm. Diagram is well, semi permanent. You know, it stays there, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore it becomes subject to I mean, analysis may seem a bit of a heavy-duty word. Children analyze. Why does that go there? Why is that close? What's at the end of an arrow? You know, and they can talk about it. Um, children find it hard to analyze text willingly and asking, what does it mean? Does this belong to so-and-so? Whereas with a diagram, it seems to invite that kind of inquiry and collaborative discussion. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. No, it's beautifully how you've summed it up there. Thank you. So can I go and... Moving on from the research as we go th- as we go through the book and how it applies to to, to teachers in, the, in their in their day to day practice because the book made me reflect and refresh my own approach to, to the teaching materials and the and the slides and the resources that, that accompany my teaching and it made me think long and hard about what I include in my visuals to support children their learning alongside the, the language that I use and the resources that, that best support the, the learning of young people. So with that idea in mind, what do teachers often get wrong or, or are simply unaware of which results in, in, in poor presentations, worksheets and displays that has a significant impact on, on young people's cognitive load in their learning? Okay, there are, I mean, I've got a library of design books, and even the ones that are meant for non-designers, there's a particular book, which is good, but it's a bit dated now, called Design for Non-Designers. I think it's too complicated for non-designers. So I've done a bit of whole class feedback. Um, I've been looking at what teachers have been doing for four decades, and, and now that they've got computers, I know what they're doing. It's exaggerated their mistakes. So the more powerful the tool, the bigger the mistakes. And I've got four principles which come directly from my observing what teachers do. The first one is cut. So their mistake is they they put too much on the slide, too much on the display board, just too much. Mm-hmm. So uh, It's the simplest to understand, it's the simplest to implement, and it has the biggest impact. Secondly, um, they need to chunk information up. We understand the world because we group things together into patterns. We group things together, call it categorized, call it chunking, call it what you will. Teachers can do that by physically grouping information together. So we separate it and then we signal what that group is by a title. And it's visually clear enough. So chunking up. The third one is alignment. It seems petty, but what teachers do, because they have never been, it's not their fault, you know, they've never been taught, they try and make things engaging. They think, I'll make it look jazzy, I'll make it look organic, I'll make it look and asymmetric. So everything's going everywhere. Whereas they should be doing the very opposite. I want you to imagine looking at a railway timetable. I want you to imagine the weekend Sunday papers, there's the listings for TV the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. And it's been laid out the way a teacher lays out a PowerPoint slide. You never find anything. 
it's all asymmetric everywhere, loads of colours, fancy fonts. You you just give up. And that's what students do. So instead of thinking of it as art, forget art, it's got nothing to do with art. I want you to adopt the railway timetable as your model. As, don't feel it as much as a railway timetable, but clarity. Notice how information is presented to you. It's really, everything's aligned up. There's a pattern. I knows where, where it is and where the next bit is. Predictable. No mental, that's another thing, cognitive load. No mental energy spent on where do I look, where does it go? And the last one is just restraint. Restraint. Uh, in, I understand the enthusiasm to want to engage students, um, and therefore that's why you get every colour, every pattern, every typeface, every everything. Just restraint. Less really is more mm-hmm. in here. Less is more. So be really clear what the message you want to have and cut everything else out. So even when you use a table, for example, on Word, automatically you get these big, fat, bold lines that make everything look like a prison cell. There's this thing called Gestalt psychology called figure ground, where you have what's important comes to the front and what's unimportant recedes in the background. So when you're doing a table, you want the very thinnest line and almost light gray. So it still structures everything, mm-hmm. but it seeds in perception. And what comes to the fore now is the words you use. So obviously, if, that, if you've got the table there, rather than having the big board lines, that actually takes attention away. Whereas if you make it thinner lines, the words that are there that are the, va- the, the real learning, that's what's focused on. Exactly. And you can apply that principle in lots of places. Yeah. That's wonderful, wonderful. And I like that idea of, of kind of, thinking about the railway timetable because it is so simple to be able to to see your destination see your time and you know exactly where you're going so you get to the to the to what you want what you want early and if we think about learning and what we want children to get to early i think that's wonderfully sum up so you, you can also write um powerpoint is kind of the main main tool of, of of teachers everywhere they share their powerpoints they have it in every lesson there's sometimes death by powerpoint in some lessons because there are just so many of them so so many slides but you're right that powerpoint can be the litmus test of understanding cognitive load theory and its significance in communication why is this and, and how do teachers then get their powerpoints right alignment can be handled straight away by the latest incarnation of of powerpoint is Thanks, because it's been copying Apple Keynote for decades. So it's kind of catching up now. Um, look at guides, and you'll be able to get little dotted lines that are invisible once you present it, but it helps you align everything up. Every piece of professional graphics work, every newspaper, every magazine, every website, every TV, every display, hoarding, there's an invisible grid that the designer used to align everything up. And that's the big secret designers have. And um, the, what I've seen on the web for teachers over the last six months now has been so professional. Absolute transformation has been down to the use of the grid, more than their discovery of the noun project and icons. That's another issue we'll talk about later. But the major thing is, is a grid. Everything's lined up. That forces you then to work out the hierarchy. What's the big signal I want to attract attention? And then what's the details later on? Alignment is key. Uh, yeah. So then, and, sorry, go, go ahead. 
Uh, the other thing we need to be careful of is using the bullet point. At one stage, the word bullet point was only ever known by printers. It's a technical word, and it's been adopted by the general population, and it's really overused. I'm exaggerating, but I, I, I'm tempted, and in fact, I do say, leave the bullet points for your shopping list. That's it. So leave it for a list. Now, lists don't have much meaning. Yeah, as a professional, you go to a course, and you, a good chance is the majority of people will just present you lists of stuff, bullet points, lists. There's no meaning in a list. There's no meaning. There's no attraction. Not engaging. It's just, it's almost like your dirty underwear. It shouldn't be on show. So many experts say it's called, it's basically an ed memoir for the presenter. So keep it hidden. What you present to, to communicate is a sentence. You can't beat a sentence. A really well-formed, crisp sentence with full of meaning that's engaging not stuffy abstract words but you know zappy look i've got the guardian here the guardian weekly and i'm going to read out some sentences um which what's called a stand first there's the title then there's the article and the stand first in the middle is what attracts you gives you the meaning in a nutshell so in italy says there's a big article about the pope it says Former Pope claims foes want to stifle his views about Israel. Court deliberations could end Netanyahu's career. Haiti, uh, Haiti. rights monitors savage UN over cholera cleanup. Lastly, United Kingdom. Prime Minister and fiancé welcome arrival of their son. You know, you, it's not confusing. Mm. You really get what they're saying. So... Plain PowerPoint slide, perhaps with an image, and that one sentence, people really get what you're saying, and the rest of the time, the eyes are on you, the presenter. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, yeah, so you become equivalent to the article. So you have title, stand first, and the article on print, on PowerPoint, it's the image or a title, your one really pithy sentence, and then the article is you as you talk, the detail. Mm -hmm. So that kind of avoids this idea of overcrowded PowerPoints that distract the attention and don't have actually any meaning by having that title, your your pithy your pithy sentence yeah. that then and then you uh, delivering your instruction that would enhance the the learning experience for the young people because they'll have a clear focus. Yeah, there should be no hiding place if you go on stage to present. They're looking at you all the time. There's nowhere to hide. Don't hide behind the microphone. Don't hide behind the lectern. Don't be hide behind your laptop. Don't hide behind those bullet points. You're on show. And if you don't like being on show, don't stand up in front of people. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, <laughs> moving on from, from PowerPoint, another thing that, that teachers put forth a lot of effort in is, is classroom displays. So my question to you here, Ollie, is are classroom displays worth the efforts that is put forth by teachers? And then what would you then consider best practice for really utilising displays to enhance learning? I want to start the sentence first. There is no best practice because all practice is crap. <laughs> so Nottingham University, I've got a, 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 I put it in my book, did some studies and also collected other studies and what they found was it's always a bit like the Goldilocks thing definitely the type of stimulating classroom displays we see throughout and 
authority figures, head teachers, inspectors, consider to be necessary are detrimental to learning. They're completely and utterly the wrong thing. And there's no evidence backing up that practice. There's no bit of cognitive science which says students learn less if you haven't got gaudy, overcrowded, over-decorative um, displays. None of it. Whereas there is research to show that they can harm learning. In some sense, in fact, all the research, when I was going to say the Goldilocks, um, in terms of cognitively speaking, we're actually probably better off with classrooms that are designed for people with autism. Nothing on the walls. Nothing on the walls. Um, and uh, however, for some sense of the human aspect, you may want to have some things on there. So uh, the trouble is, the things you want, particularly primary classrooms, or and the secondaries as well, the things you want in pupils' mind, if you put them on the wall, you're more or less guaranteed you'll never go in their mind because we put things in our mind through effort. If it's up on the wall, why would you learn it? You know? The reason why I don't learn timetable, uh, railway timetables is because I can look at it. If I couldn't look at it, I'd learn it off by heart. Otherwise, I'd miss my train. So you need to make them work. Um, the other thing is something doesn't stay new very long. So once it's up there, you don't take any notice. Just don't take any notice whatsoever. So it's completely misguided. As for the design part, I mean, when I first started teaching, it was like everyone had a go. All the advice, you know, when the, there were things called local education authorities and there were advisors and HMIs, your board had to be Hessian. God knows why. I was one of those bugs who kept asking, why Hessian? What's the significance of Hessian? And on the corner, there was a curtain. There were drapes. And the drapes came diagonally across the Hessian and they had to be spread over a table where you put things. It had to be that way. No one could answer all of his questions why. Just, just, just do it as your sect. You know, so much nonsense goes on in education because we always do. So, for example, everything has to have that corrugated, curvy cardboard on the edge. Why? It's just awful. There are things that go on in schools aesthetically that design-wise you don't see anywhere else in the whole world. It's not in shopping malls. It's not on websites. It's not on magazines. It's nowhere. It's this little bubble of school where they invent this nonsense and perpetuate it all the time. So what I would do, so I don't think there is good practice. It just doesn't happen. Uh, well, it happens outside of schools. I advise everyone to go to Ikea when it's when the virus lets us. Mm -hmm. And you'll see what a display board is. It's an indoor billboard. Mm -hmm. It's an indoor billboard. You'll notice they haven't got hundreds of bits of paper on there. They haven't got corrugated. They've got one image with a white background, which is figure ground. So, you you know, figure disappears. The message, which is, say, the chair, comes up. One word, four pounds. You know, and you just, you get it straight away. Mm -hmm. But the problem is you have to change it. So what I would do is, and I advise people, you need to ask your caretaker first. Measure up your board and make little tacks or whatever on the top and the side so you've got a grid. At any time, you can get some – back it up, back it, get some masking tape to create your grid, and then you put things on there, big, large, with a big title. And you don't have to spend ages on a computer printing it and then cutting it. Get a big, fat felt tip and learn how to print. There was a time when every teacher, every primary teacher could print perfectly well. Mm-hmm. 
lower and uppercase print. Not handwriting, not fancy flourishes, a good print. Bit, halfway to being like a sign writer. Not difficult, because I've seen thousands of teachers do it, yeah? Print it. And then you might have a really blown up picture of kids' work. Don't have kids' work the same size, because that's meant to be read like a foot away from your eyes. But displays a long way away. You never see anything that small typeface in Ikea. So blow it up big and then perhaps annotate all the bits that are good about it. Well, keep it up for three days, put another one up. Ideally, you know, every two days, change it. So all the background's done, that's changing one element. And then kids' work do get displayed and you are teaching what works, what's good about it. Everyone feels good and they're learning and it changes and it's clear and it's, and it's dynamic. Hmm. something along those lines that's a good idea because then the display then it's it's easy to maintain because you it, all the back of yours up you're just blowing up the paper and anti, which you would be doing anyway for through your yeah. marking and as you said earlier if something's up in the wall it just gets ignored a period yeah. of time we just ignore that it's there and we focus on the other things that's wonderfully wonderfully sum up and, and i agree with with a lot of the a lot of the points you made there um so Ollie, now in in this modern age everyone is now a, a creator of digital documents and you say in, in the book that success relies on pre-digital principles, not on the power of the software. What do you mean by this? And, and why should we have knowledge of how a grid works when designing documents? Which you've already spoken about a little bit. Well, we believe that software uh, is better than it is. So you open up Word or PowerPoint and without thinking, you've got the content in mind, it will drive, on PowerPoint, it will drive you to title, indented, subdivision, bullet points, bullet points. So it then shapes, directs, frames, assumes how you communicate information. What I would recommend you do, the most, one of the most, well, to me, the most two powerful technologies in school are this. One, for teach, the visualizer to communicate. Can't beat it. Of course, I've known it used to be called an overhead transparency overhead projector essentially it's the same thing um, but anyway apart from that the next bit, most powerful technology is a post-it note and the smaller the post-it note the more powerful it is because it condensing things down if we consider that thinking and learning is about organizing and reorganizing information into different permutations so we contrast we hierarchy sequence okay Doing it inside our head is very difficult because I can't see inside my head. And um, I, as a human being, have a really small working memory. And in the same way that I find it hard to, to pat my stomach and stroke my head or whichever way around it is, I simply find I cannot manipulate information, remember it, reorganize it, and have a, an eye to see whether what I'm doing is correct. Just not possible. If you project your thinking, so to speak, metaphorically, onto a surface, a wall, a table, with post-it notes, it's as if you're looking at your mind. To me, it's the simplest way to make sense of metacognition. You know, so you get one word or a couple of words on post-it note, and you move them into different organ into different permutations, and. What's interesting is when you look at cognitive science, as I had done for four decades, and you read all the books, 
when they start looking at schema, people have adopted the word schema now. Mm-hmm. It's back in our language. I thought it had died out. Never heard uh, well, 20 years ago that I was brought up on the word. When you look at psychologists, cognitive psychologists, and they depict a schema, they always draw it as a bubble or words joined up in a non-linear fashion. So post-it notes are schematic in nature. They're closer to our schema than a paragraph is, or a speaking word. That's almost foreign. It's almost foreign. It's one step away from what our schemas are like. Whereas when you move things around, not only are you creating schematic organization, but it's brilliant for conversation. As students then can explain to each other and ask questions about the nature and correctness of these different permutations. And then when it's arrived at, I'm talking about students, I'll go on to back to, to staff, mm-hmm. they then explain it to somebody else. They naturally use, if you read old Chomsky, you know, we have our language acquisition device where we naturally group things together with syntax through, and we create a story and narrative to somebody else, which of course addresses the issue that we can't write that which we can't talk about. And you ask a, most, a lot of children to explain something and they can't. Give them a diagram that they've been part of constructing and having a dialogue in the construction with a peer, then when the final product comes, they've got lots to talk about. And that then becomes your rehearsal for writing. So you see, like a sports person, you build a, you build a skill up. They want to be able to write properly. Well, don't start just writing. <laughs> you know, build up. Structure, content, coherence, rehearsal. So back to teachers. So the same thing goes on with teachers. As information designers, what do I want them to say? Put everything down, a dump, and then you would cull everything. Which bits are actually extra? I love it, but actually it's too much detail. Get rid of that. Then what you got left, you put it into an order. And that tends to be chunking. And then you get the chunks. And because we live in a world where you can't slow all the slides at the same time, you can't say all the words at the same time. It is sequential. Those chunks have to be sequenced. They have to be sequenced. And then you physically sequence them. And in the sequencing, in the back of your mind or at the forefront of your mind, what are the links? Is it and then? Is it but? Is it also? Is it consequently? So you create a rationale, a story, and it all builds together. Then you go onto your slide. Then you work out. What's the most, the most graphically efficient way? And for the most part, it'll be, as we briefly talked about, a really pithy sentence, and then which introduces you, the article, as you then take center stage and, and give them a narrative. Brilliant. I love how you, you introduced how to how to help. We all want children to to put forth their ideas in a in a clear and structured way, and you've just given a, a wonderful example how to do that within to help them build up their knowledge and their ability to to communicate with with each other and you in, in their learning. I think that was that was a fantastic bit in there as well as support for for teachers and putting putting forth their ideas and being able to put it into into their presentations. So moving on a little bit now, is is that I never really considered pen crafting my handwriting. You spoke earlier on about primary school teachers being brilliant at, at print, uh, and my handwriting <laughs> at best is awful, and and I really need to focus on improving my, my sketches underneath the visualizer and my handwriting when writing on, on whiteboards and when writing under the visualizers. 
but using dotted paper since since writing your book, it, it, I think has really helped in terms of of improving that. So, how can improving pen craft benefit teachers in in their day to day work? Well, let me say something which is embarrassing. I think a lot of pupils can't read teachers' handwriting. Full stop. Just it's just too bad. It's so poor. Um, and if they can read it, it's after cognitive load that if talk about an extrinsic load spending all my energy trying to damn read the damn scribble you know so essentially we need to print when you look at diagrams by architects and engineers they use capitals i know there's an argument not to use capitals with the very youngest children although strangely enough you can't hide it from their eyes in the real world they come across them all the time so i don't think it's as big a problem as early years teachers make out i should be quiet when my wife was an early years teacher she wouldn't agree with me so the first thing is you need to know how to hold a pencil. Unfortunately, and it's embarrassing on some of my courses sometimes because obviously I've got young people like yourself, many of whom, in terms of handwriting, were taught by teachers who were so misguided that any grip is okay. I'm not suggesting teachers get a ruler and whack kids on the knuckles, <laughs> but it's definitely not okay other than you present a pencil in front of you with a point facing you, you pick it up, naturally you'll use your first finger and your thumb, you'll pick it up, you turn it around, and that's the grip. This has been known around the world for centuries. And all of a sudden we're getting teachers, and I see them, particularly with long nails, they grip it any any weird and wacky way. And it will give them incredible Joint, joint problems later on. So there is a proper way to hold a pencil. And, the other, and then what I teach them is, um, and I was taught this by um, Trevor Flynn, who teaches the architects at Norman Foster's how to draw. It's interesting, the architects don't know how to draw very well either, because they're not taught it at school. And it's all based on how to draw a line. And the line is you don't draw, holding a grip properly, you don't draw with your wrist. We're not talking about art, feathery lines. You don't draw it with your elbow. You keep all those stiff. You look at the point of destination and you start strong. You don't go too slow and you finish strongly. Bold, simple line. It's not hard. One strong, bold line. Don't go fast. The biggest mistake people do is they go too fast and it ends up being flighty. Boom. Boom. That's it. And the same quality of line for when you're writing. Um, and then look, not only is it attractive, it looks um, really clear. Mm-hmm. Clarity, clarity, clarity all the time. And deal with writing and reading handwriting at another time. And if you want a model, um, he's no longer taught in most schools, but I'm delighted to know he's taught in more schools than I thought, is, um, oh, I've got his name, Jarman. Jarman's modern, basic modern hand, in which he identifies 12 principles that underlie all styles of writing. So this isn't about, I think it's a big mistake that we've taught children a writing style. We should teach them a basic modern hand in which they can then elaborate any style they want to. So for example, um, I'll just tell you some of the principles. One is that um, upright should be parallel. So you shouldn't have a D going backwards, a P going forwards, they're all parallel. The size of the body of the height, you know, the O and the E, they're all the height and strangely enough the ascenders the bits that go up aren't too high they're no more than the height of the body of the e or the a similarly so with the descenders 
Um, and over the world, we look at the amount of research that's gone into legibility of signage, particularly on, on roads where it needs to be immediate, although they may use a different typeface, and um, all those typefaces correspond to the same rules. The ascenders and descenders aren't too tall either way. So we know what works for, for perception. Just need to pick it up and acknowledge that it's important. Jen, I think I think for me, definitely in, in my career, I think I'm one of those teachers that's been incredibly guilty of god-awful handwriting that children just can't read, which makes my feedback even harder and I'm, I'm doubling my work. Whereas by focusing on improving improving the, the handwriting and, and the pen craft, it's it's enabling me to be able to communicate more effectively both through the written form and when I'm when I'm speaking. So it's it's essentially reducing my workload, if you like to think about think about it in that kind of sense. So thank you. Um can I, you spoke about sketch noting in the book and sketch noting is rising in popularity and it regularly appears in my Twitter timeline, especially after that presentation of course, which seems to be happening every day just now. Um do you think sketch noting is an effective method of learning that we can employ and encourage in our classrooms? I wanna make one big distinction. So I'm a real fan of people making their own notes and of diagramming and drawing images. Although I'm also aware from what I saw some primary practice with mind mapping 20 years ago, you can waste an awful amount of time children just drawing and coloring in. But the key distinction is, are you creating a sketch note for yourself learning or to communicate with students? So apart from Mike Roder's book on sketch noting, Pretty much every other website or sketch notebook that I've seen, I think is really poor. I mean, it's unkind of me to be so blunt, mm. being really poor because they pay no heed to the very basic graphic guidelines to how to communicate. So if you're learning for yourself, do whatever you want to. For the most part, most sketch notes I've seen, apart from notable exceptions on Twitter, and they know who they are because I say how great they are. A lot of sketch notes are way too full up, way too colourful, no structure, no alignment. And even though I'm considered a visual person, I never want to read one of those. It's just too much hard work. It's unpleasant. Mm -hmm. unpleasant. But if that works for you as a learner, do whatever you want to. Sketch notes have been really good in encouraging people who aren't arty to have the courage just to do whatever they want to doodle. That's great. Now, but it's completely different if you're going to communicate to somebody. If you're going to communicate to somebody, then you have to make sure cut, there's not too much on there. Chunk, you group things up into structure and it's clear and you signal. Everything's aligned. It's not just this organic hippie mess and restrained from all those bloody colors and, and fancy writing and fancy everything. So if you can sketch note like that, following those guidelines for your students, that's fine. If you can't, keep it private. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Um, chapter five, five of the book, Ollie, shares some insights into professional practice by teachers, teacher developers, psychologists, and information designers. You ask them how they think the use of dual coding supports their teaching throughout that. I really enjoyed this section, and, and, and it helped me learn than so much, and I'm sure other readers have have felt the same. So why did you include this section and what does it help get across in your book? I was aware that because of my background in design and because I've been on a Macintosh since 1989, 
people could admire what I do, but admiration sometimes is really not beneficial. People just think, oh, that's him, he can do it, I can't do it. So it doesn't very, as much as I might try to be encouraging, it doesn't encourage people. So I thought I'd have everyday teachers. So, you know, in some of the works you see in there, you know, they're not graphically talented, they're not artistically talented, but I thought it really encouraged people. The ironic thing, of course, <laughs> is that apart from the information designers who are excellent anyway, a lot of a lot of the contributors in that section, if they'd read the book first, <laughs> would be much better. <laughs> so in a way, we're seeing people who are using it effectively and yet they haven't been informed by these simple guidelines on how to be even more effective. Mm -hmm. But that's the one thing they would be, in fact, I could almost have them there, collect their stuff, print the book, give it to them, get them to study it, and then see their up before and after. But I think it served its main purpose to show it's used by different subjects in different ages, different types of professions, and you just don't need to be a hotshot. Definitely, I think it, for me it definitely shows that it doesn't need to 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 be that perfect, but at least em, embracing the principles that you've that you've spoke a lot about here and 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 seeing that it can happen and and as you said, different subjects across the curriculum and across different contexts, then it shows that the the principles of the design can really enhance the 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 visual aspect of your of your teaching, but in turn and more importantly, it, it helps with the learning of the young people. Um, kind of just before we finish off and we move on to, to my final three section is that I just want to say that the book is visually brilliant and it's so accessible and it's it's accessible so much due to your suggestion reading routes so how did you decide upon on the reading routes and, and, and how does that help the reader? Um, it was suggested to me by somebody and um, I thought it was a really good idea you know cognitive psychologists have owned up the fact that even when they read a book they almost forget it straight away and you know people on a course if they ask you if this course is good they don't think it's good if they've got a takeaway something you can use straight away so some people like to read a book they've got a lot of background knowledge and they'll assimilate everything and they'll take notes other people are just looking for the goodies so um, what I would suggest is um, for which I had a few examples in different sorts of subject books not education is to have three different levels which are self-determined so the reader determines if I'm a novice, because people don't like being called a novice by somebody else, do they? Because <laughs> um, they think novice means ignorant. In a pejorative term, it just means don't know. Um, and so people then could choose. And then um, it took a while for me to organize it, because I had to organize it from front to back, logically. Then I had to take, disassemble it, all the bits, and take out the bits that I considered to be, could be immediately understandable by a novice and useful. So they could take away. So I did that similarly so with all the others. And then kind of the grid format lent itself most easily to showing that. I'm interested in that as well. You know, I'd be interested in all the current work on the curriculum. And sometimes some curriculum apps are really complicated. I wonder whether it would be interesting. I mean, it's almost differentiation, isn't it? Which I know is a bad thing because everyone has a right to everything. I understand that. But nevertheless, it would be interesting to look at it from if you presented it to a student. Mm -hmm. material. This is what we're going to hit first. This is more complex. This is the hinterland. All oh, right, I've got it. Okay. Well, I think that's interesting. One of the the principles that underpin curriculum in Scotland um, is personalisation and choice. And I think we get personalisation quite wrong. But I think how you've how you've um, 
suggested that idea of the curriculum from allowing the student to interpret whether they're a novice or whether they're an expert in the area and being able to select their own learning, I think that would allow, afford for much more meaningful personalisation choice because I'll admit quite happily that when I picked up your book and saw the reading routes, I I, I went straight for novice and, I, and I'm still there. <laughs> I'm hoping to try as I, as I get more experience and, and kind of building up my own confidence, I can then go into look at looking at exploring some of the other the other more complex ideas as I, as I move from novice to to expert over over time so just to kind of finish off this interview section it's it's been truly wonderful Ollie where can listeners buy your books and hear you speak and, and engage with you on, on on social media or the internet or the websites or so on the book is bought from John Cat dual coding with teachers you can buy it from Amazon as well, but it's great to support John Cat, the educational publisher. Uh, I have a website, ollicav.com, in which around about 95% of it is free to download with a Creative Commons agreement that you don't neither alter it nor sell it or part of your sales. You can use it as you wish. Um, I'm at ollicav on Twitter. And um, because of my age and because I have one kidney, I'm a vulnerable person. So I won't be continuing my live training events until there's a vaccine. So that may be never. You know? So I'm doing some things online now, which is um, I had a, a, a skit who wanted me to do my full day online. So just like this full day, it's incredible. I thought, really? You know, I wouldn't want to see me for more than 20 minutes online. But I did an, an hour and a half and we worked out how we could do activities. We had buddies with with WhatsApp, telephones, and we did all the activities. Worked out well, and the feedback was really good. So I, I'm also doing it in terms of a half an hour slot and 90 minute slot, so I'm working online. I'm not sure I'll continue online. You know, it's, it's more fun in person. It, it yeah. certainly is. So hopefully, that, hopefully that at one point that we can get, get through through the this this pandemic and, and get you back out in, in, in front of teachers, because I'm sure... Um, having spoken to you now and, and read your books and engaged with you on Twitter, I'm sure having you in in front of myself and fellow teachers would be a would be a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, so thank you for that, Ollie. And that sums up our, our interview section. I've now got our final three questions, which I ask all my guests to, to contribute. And and I think it's one of the most enlightening things for me to to hear their thoughts on on these questions and the and the different different thoughts that they all have. So my first question in in that. Ollie, is what book or text has had the biggest impact on you in your career? Wow, I read so I've read so much. It sounds very progressive, and it's cited by the progressive camp, and I don't belong in any camp. Is John Holt's "Why Children Fail"? He also had "Why Children Learn." And in it, and I used to remember this quote off by heart, it goes something along these lines, I'm paraphrasing. It says, when a teacher wants to explain something, the ideas they have in their head are all joined up in non-linear fashion. He's explaining a schema. And then he expresses that with a string of words in the hope that the student will collect the string of words and reassemble them in their non-linear format in their head and call that understanding. It struck home immediately. That's actually, we live in this enormous hope. We have a schema which is non-linear, 
we put it into a string of words which is sequential and linear and we hope the listener will get these individual words and reform it like a like you give people pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and all of a sudden immediately they'll create this jigsaw puzzle because we never show them what the front cover of the jigsaw puzzle is <laughs> because the, the mystery will be gone yeah. A, <laughs> I really like how you how that how that that quote sounds like sounds uh, really good uh, good thinking on 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 how we actually can uh, enact our, our our teaching day to day in this hope that children actually pick it up and can then put it back together in their brain. Where maybe we need to think a bit more clear on how we how we do that. Thank you. And my second question to you is: if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? It's a funny bit of advice. I was talking to um, Barry Smith, you know, the, he was a deputy at Michaela. And this is often downplayed. And I think teachers, so with regard behavior, none of it is personal, though, even though the insults may be directed to you. I think teachers have to act. They are doing a performance. Now, some may be more extrovert in, in how they exhibit their performance, but it is a performance. Teaching is, is a performance profession. That's why it's so tiring, amongst many other things, it's so tiring. You give energy. Now, some are doing it more extrovertly, and PE teachers have to be quite extrovert and explicit. And perhaps some, and I'm, there's lots of discussion about, is there no place for introverts? I understand that. But however you consider yourself to be intrinsically, you need to bypass that judgment because actors could be extrovert or introvert, but when they act, they act. Mm -hmm. <laughs> got nothing to do with their internal quintessential self. That's got nothing to do with it. You do that after school. School is just about performing. And in performing, you're always checking. Maybe I'll give a different answer. Um, we can maybe talk about the walkthrough I did with Tom Sherrington. There are 52 Sherrington. There are 52 walkthrough techniques and he he did a video of them all and, and when he kept to one of them he says this is probably the most important and that's check for understanding so it check around so it carries on with the john holt thing we say things with great mm -hmm. orator we even got great personality and we do perform but actually unless you check for understanding it, it's it, it's all hit and miss Certainly, so, unless you so, check for understanding we'll never actually know Bit. I'd cancel the performance bit. That goes further down. I'd say check for understanding. Well, thank you. And my, and my last question to you, Ollie, something that, that that really fascinates me in my in my my research just now is is what do you think most gets in the way of great teaching in our classrooms? I was a head teacher, so what I'm going to say sounds cruel. I think it's head teachers and senior managers who um, have adopted the most dangerous ideas are the ones you're not aware of. <laughs> and the most dangerous ideas are the efficiency that revolutionized management and, and um, yeah, that revolutionized management since the Japanese well. Taylor, Taylorism, you know, 50, I don't know how many years ago, where we measure everything. 
And then the way the Japanese improved it is we think we can take a totally rational, objective, measurement, calibrated approach to this really messy world of teaching. Now, the thing is, it can go a long way. And when I look at the schools that I taught in or visited when I was young, they were just chaotic, man. And they could really done with a bit of management. But it's gone to the point where it's detrimental and it's, 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 it's negative. So you get these lists of all the qualities that teachers should have and then you checklist all the time. It's just not the way to do it. You just don't do that. You just need to have a non-threatening, collaborative coaching atmosphere. But when I say coaching, I'm thinking more along the instructional coaching, more like PE teachers. So going back to the idea of the performance, it is a performance, it's just a bunch of skills. You need to know the skills so well it's automatic. When it's automatic, you've got enough now, so you've got enough working memory free to check for understanding, know what's going on, deal with relationships, you know, cut off problems before they start. You can't do that if you if you actually can't if the skills aren't automatic. So it's about developing skills and checklisting them isn't a good way of learning. It certainly is. I think it takes away the, the, the human aspect. The, the, the learning is messy for both teachers and pupils. And I yeah. think by, by the, this idea of efficiency that's permeated education in the UK for way longer than 20 odd years, it, it just hasn't, it, it hasn't helped us develop as fast and to, as, as we like, and, and we're, we're not as close to having a world class education system as perhaps we may think. Well, Ollie, I'd like to, to finish the, the podcast now. I'd like to thank you so, so much for giving me your, your time this morning. And thank you so much for, for your input to the podcast. It's, it's, it's helped me learn and clarify a lot of my thoughts. And I hope that the listeners will get the, the, the same out of it that, that I have. So, so thank you so, so much. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.